All right, well, good morning, church. Uh, really great to be back with you all. Uh, let's bow together in prayer before we get into our message. Almighty God, we ask you now to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word. There are many things in your word that are indeed hard to hear and to receive. But it's your hard word that makes a soft, humble, loving people. And so would you do that work in us by your spirit through this passage. Pray that you would use me and my weakness to speak with clarity, to speak in a manner worthy of your name, and that this would be helpful for your people today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a most daunting task this morning. You know, last week we finished up Romans chapter 8, which many consider the greatest chapter in the Bible, the great eight. And hopefully you were tremendously blessed and helped by the truths that we saw throughout this chapter. Well, if Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible, then Romans chapter 9 is perhaps the most difficult chapter in the Bible. And that's why this morning Pastor Luke is nowhere to be seen. Right? <laughs> I'm just, he's actually at Renewal West Philly. Uh, we're trading places today. Right? Now one of the good things about preaching through whole books of the Bible like we're doing through Romans is that it forces us to not avoid tackling hard passages like this. One of the not so good things about preaching through books of the Bible is that it forces me, it forces the pastors to not avoid tackling hard passages like this. Now this passage is about God's absolute sovereignty in the salvation of sinners. Whereby God, from all eternity past, has chosen by a sheer grace some out of the human race to be saved unto everlasting life in heaven and to pass over the rest to allow them to suffer the just consequences of their sins, everlasting punishment in hell. This is a doctrine that we call predestination. God's preordaining the destiny of all peoples. Another word that scripture uses is election. God's electing those whom he saves. Now obviously we are treading into deep waters here. And let me just say that I will not be able to, through this one message, say all that needs to be said about this doctrine. So probably all your questions and your thoughts will not be answered and resolved through this one message. And this is also going to be a teaching-heavy passage, obviously. So it's not 
uh, the best for those of you who are still in 4th of July holiday mode, okay? So let me encourage you uh, to the best of your ability this morning with an alert mind and an open heart to really, really receive what this passage has to teach us this morning. Now before we get to uh, what this passage has to say, I want us to remember Isaiah 55, 9. Now some of us know this verse. Where it says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Now one of the things that this verse entails is that we need to expect all the teachings of the Bible, including the doctrine of election, to be, be beyond our full comprehension and to challenge us. See, we are finite, flawed beings trying to know an infinite, perfect God. And just because you don't understand or you don't initially like how something in the Bible is so does not mean that it isn't so. You know, I've heard over the years people say to me, I don't, I don't believe in the doctrine of predestination. I don't believe in predestination. I ask them why. Because I don't get it. Or I just don't like it. I don't like what it teaches. To that, let me caution you and say beware of accepting what you like in the Bible and rejecting what you don't like in the Bible lest you believe in a God in a religion of your own making and choosing rather than the God of Scripture, the true and living God. You know, the attitude of faith and worship is to humbly receive all that God has revealed to us in the Bible and where the Bible leads us to the end of our understanding, which is really actually every truth in the Bible. There's no truth in the Bible that we fully wrap our mind around. But where Scripture leads us to the end of our understanding, we submit to its mysteries, knowing that it makes perfect sense on God's level, and we are not there. So with that spirit, let's learn from Romans chapter 9. So we're going to try to understand, unpack this doctrine of God's election under these three headings. So this is my outline this morning. First, we're going to look at the meaning of God's election. Then secondly, we're going to answer objections to God's election. And lastly, we'll see our response, our worthy, fitting response to God's election. So first, the meaning of God's election. Let me set the context here of what's going on, because people are confused by the turn that Paul seems to take from Romans chapter 8, those beautiful promises, to Romans chapter 9, which just seems like a detour, right? So we saw in Romans 8 that God is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So if you remember verse 30, of chapter 8, where it says, and those whom God predestined, so that's the word clearly right there, predestined, he also called. 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So God guarantees that his chosen people will never lose their salvation, but persevere all the way to the end and safely make it, reach it to their home in heaven. But this raises a huge question. And it puts into question the trustworthiness of God. And that's what about the Jews? What about the people of Israel that the Bible calls God's chosen people? Now look with me in verse 4 of our passage, Romans 9. In verse 4, we see all the privileges that Israel, God's chosen, has received. They've received the adoption. They are God's adopted people. The Bible calls Israel the son of God. So they are God's adopted people. And what do they receive? The glory of God in the temple. The covenants through Abraham and Moses and David. The holy law of God. They receive the ability to worship God properly in spirit and in truth through the sacrifices, through the sacrificial system that no other nation had. They receive many promises of grace. If you look on in verse 5, they are the heirs of the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from their lineage, their heritage, comes none other than the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see all that Israel has been given, bestowed, but yet what? Most of the Jews have rejected Jesus and rejected salvation. So this brings into question, has God failed his people? Has his promise, his power, his love to Israel, have that failed? And if he's failed here, that brings into question everything about God. So that's what Paul is dealing with here. Now, how does he respond to this in verse 6? He says, no. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, how so? First, according to what Paul teaches here, we need to define Israel properly. Who is Israel? Well, Israel, to whom all these blessings and promises are bestowed, is not the physical descendants of Abraham, but the spiritual descendants of Abraham who have Abraham's faith. Read with me in the rest of verse 6 through 8. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring Named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. See, what that's saying there is just being physically born a Jew doesn't make one a child of God. You need to be a spiritual Jew by faith. But then, that begs the question, 
what ultimately determines who is part of true spiritual Israel who inherits salvation, not just physical Israel. And this is our focus this morning. This is ultimately a function of God's choice, God's sovereign choosing. His word has not failed. It has gone all according to his sovereign plan. You see, the reason why out of Abraham's sons, Isaac was chosen as the son of promise, even though he was born later, rather than Ishmael, if you remember your um, biblical knowledge from Genesis, and then why out of Isaac's sons, it was Jacob, the younger twin, that was chosen as the son of promise, not Esau. Why? Why is that the case? It was because of God's purpose of election. Verses 10 to 13. What do we see there? Paul says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here is where we see what the doctrine of election entails, what it means. And it's that God unconditionally chooses those whom he'll save. It is absolutely unconditional on his part. And it doesn't have anything to do with conditions that are met in us. Now when people hear this, they don't like it. (laughs) They don't like to hear this because what this means is that human beings, we are not in control of our destiny. It doesn't have to do with what we do or we don't do. And so people who struggle with this, in the church has arisen this common belief that God's election is conditional, not unconditional. And so there are actually many in the church who hold to this belief where they try to kind of wiggle around this, where they argue that what God does here is that he foresees into the future, those who will have faith and good works on their own, and on that basis, God will choose them. That's how the argument goes. That's what many in the church believe. God first foresees those who will believe and obey, and on that basis, God will choose them. But let me ask you, is that what you see here? Is that what you see in this passage? It clearly says, God chose Jacob over Esau well before they were born. Well before either of them did anything to earn it or unearn it. It was all because of him who calls, not because of any works. You see, it's not because of any foreseen faith. By the way, nobody has faith on their own. Faith itself is a gift of God given to you. 
You need to be enabled by God. And so that's why election, God's choosing, is what leads to and enables faith, not the other way around. Faith that you can't possibly have apart from God does not lead to election. You see that? It's election that leads to faith. Now with this, let me briefly explain verse 13, which many people have a hard time with, understandably so, where it says there, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now isn't God love? How can it say that God hated Esau? Well, this is where we want to be aware. There is a Semitic expression, Hebrew expression with this word that doesn't literally mean hate as we use it in the English language. Right? There's a verse in Luke 14, 26 where Jesus says, and some of you are familiar with this verse, where it says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, in this verse, does Jesus literally mean, if you would follow after me, you must hate your family? No. He's not contradicting the rest of the Bible where it says we need to honor our father and mother. Husbands, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. So it doesn't literally mean hate. What Jesus is getting at is your commitment to me needs to be so supreme, needs to come before anyone and everyone else that comparatively so in following after me, it may seem like hatred to everyone and everything in comparison. And to give you an example, when I decided to go into pastoral ministry, I went against the wishes of my parents who wanted me to be an investment banker or a management consultant. And when I finally told them the news and I told them that I believe God was calling me to go into ministry, it hurt them. It broke their heart. It took a long time for them to get over that decision. It felt almost like hatred to them going against their wishes in me following God's call. So what this verse means is not that Jacob he loved, but literally he hated Esau. No, he set his saving, merciful love upon Jacob. But in the case of Esau, whom he genuinely loved, he decided his justice needed to be upheld in the midst of his love. To give you a picture, imagine a heartbroken father whose son is convicted of murder. Now that father knows that justice must be served and that his son needs to pay the consequences of his crime. Now when he knows that, does that mean that he doesn't love his son? No, he genuinely loves his son, but he knows that justice must be upheld. And that's sort of like the heart of God here. In Jacob, he savingly loved, and Esau, he passed over. 
Now let's move next to answering objections to God's election, which probably many of you have here. Right? This doctrine raises objections, questions that I've been often asked over the years, and you may have now in your minds, which Paul responds to. The first objection is this question of injustice. Are you struggling with this in your mind? Why does God choose some and not all? So in verse 14, is there injustice on God's part here? Now Paul responds using the example of Moses and Pharaoh in Exodus. Let me read it. Verses 14 to 18. By no means, that's how Paul responds to, is there injustice on God's part? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now what word do you see repeated over and over again in Paul's response? Mercy. You know, this is something that we so quickly lose sight of when thinking about God saving sinners. God saving us evil, rebellious sinners is a matter of mercy, never justice. God will have mercy on whom he wills. And as in the case of Pharaoh, he hardens and judges those who have already hardened themselves by sin. That was the case with Pharaoh. God doesn't create the hardening. Let's get this right. That's what Scripture clearly teaches. He justly allows sinners to go in the way of their hardening. That's what you see when you read through Exodus. Pharaoh hardened his own heart and God gives him over to that. We saw this way back in Romans chapter 1, if you were here for that, that God gave humanity over. He let them go in their insistent sinful desires and actions. That was God's justice to do so. So all this to say, you know, instead of asking why does God choose some and not all, that's the wrong question to ask. You know what the right question is? Why does God choose some and not none? None should receive salvation. That's justice. That would be fairness. You know what injustice is? That the perfect Son of God has to be offered up to his death so that sinners would be saved. That's injustice. You see that anyone, anyone at all, is saved is sheer mercy. There's no injustice in God. Just to give you a picture, consider a, a wealthy person that selects several underprivileged kids and pays for their college tuition. 
So recently, Kevin Durant, uh, who is part of the Western Conference All-Stars, I mean the Golden State Warriors, right? They just added another All-Star to Marcus Cousins, right? He surprised four students um, through his work at uh, the local Boys and Girls Club uh, in the Bay Area. He selected four students and surprised them by paying for their first year in college. A really generous act. Now, KD, with all his wealth, and he just signed a new contract, I think it was a two-year extension for like 60-some million dollars, he could help a lot more than those four kids, right? A lot more kids at that boys and girls club, let alone in that whole Bay Area. There are many, many equally needy students. But did you hear anyone say, in light of what Katie did here, why did you just help out four and not more? Man, that's unfair of you to help just those four and not the rest. No, no one said that. Why? Because Kevin Durant was under no personal obligation to help anyone. That he chose to be generous to help out these four students was a matter of mercy, not his obligation, not a matter of justice, you see. Now, there's a second objection that's raised that maybe some of you are struggling with in your minds, and that's the question of our free will, our human responsibility. Right? You see that in verse 19. Why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? So if God has preordained all things, then how are we responsible? You ever think that? Now, before we get to Paul's response here, let me explain what's already assumed in the teaching of the Bible in this chapter. And this is a truth that maybe will take eternity for us to fully grasp. And that's the age-old matter of God's sovereignty and our so-called human free will and how those fit together. You ever wrestle with that? If God is absolutely sovereign, he's ordained all things that come to pass, how do we have responsibility for what we do? Now, Charles Spurgeon, one of my theological heroes, Prince of Preachers, he was once asked to reconcile these two truths together. And you know, he was a really witty guy, and so he replied with his classic wit, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. You see, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that both are true and both hold together as friends. Now, we won't fully comprehend that, perhaps for all eternity, but that's what the Bible clearly teaches. Yes, God has sovereignly ordained all that comes to pass. And yes, we are at liberty to do all that we do and thus we are held fully responsible for all that we do. We, you and I are not coerced against our will like puppets. You chose to come here to church today. After church, you will voluntarily, at your own liberty, choose what you want to eat for lunch. 
No one's forcing you. You aren't coerced against your will. You are at liberty to do so. You know, we choose to sin and rebel against God. We're not forced into do so. And so we are morally responsible for all that we do. We are morally responsible for our sin. Never is it right. Never do you see it in Scripture where anyone can say, God made me do it. No. We exercise our free will and we have full human responsibility. Now listen to this. Hopefully you're following with me in all this. If there is anybody that could complain about God violating their so-called free will to do what they want to do. You know who that is? Who could complain? Those who are saved. Because we were running comfortably our hell-bound race. And if it weren't for God violating our will in running that path of rebellion and sin, if it weren't for him upending our will to turn to him and trust in him, how dare God do that? Then we would have run straight to our grave. See that? The only ones who could complain about our free will being violated is those who are saved mercifully. And to give you a picture of this, It goes beyond that example of Kevin Durant helping those underprivileged kids. Pastor James Kennedy, he gave this scenario. He says, here are five people who are planning to hold up a bank. They are friends of mine. I find out about it and I plead with them. I beg them not to do it. Finally, they push me out of the way and they start out. I tackle one of the men and wrestle him to the ground. The others go ahead, rob the bank, A guard is killed. They are captured, convicted, sentenced to death. The one man who was not involved in the robbery goes free. Now I ask you this question. Whose fault was it that the other men died? It was their own fault. They chose what they did. And they were held accountable for it. Now, this other man who is walking around free, can he say, because my heart is so good, I am a free man? The only reason that he is free is because of me, because I restrained him. So those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Thus, we see that salvation is all of grace from its beginning to its end. Now, for those of us who are saved, thanks be to God that he rustled us to the ground and stopped us from continuing on in our rebellion that we would go straight to our grave. Instead, we know life. Now, if this weren't enough, Paul, in response to this objection, gives the most humbling answer of all. And I think, to me at least, this is the most humbling verses in Scripture. Look in verses 20 to 21. How does Paul respond to 
those who raise objection, who complain for what God does in his election. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another one for dishonorable use? You know, I remember vividly in college reading through the book of Romans. And when I came to this text, I seethed in anger. Now, I put my hands up and went 12 rounds with God. Now, why did I rail against, why did I fight this truth, this clear truth of who God is and who we are? It's because I knew what it meant. It meant that I was not the master of my own fate. I was not the determiner of my own destiny. I was not the potter of my own life. In contrast to what our Western society of self-determination loves to believe. There was this fierce pride in me, this pride, self-rule, self-determination that, again, I wanted to dictate the terms of my own life. But these verses single-handedly pulverized that pride, that self-rule, that self-determination to dust. You know, there's nothing more humbling. Think about this. There's absolutely nothing more humbling than for you to realize that your life is completely at the mercy of God. Completely at the hands of his mercy. I remember when I wrestled with all this and I finally came to terms with this. I remember being face down on my ground, on the ground in my room. Through all that angst, I came out on the other side, broken, surrendered to God. Where I finally came to say, God, you are my maker, and I am not. And you have every right to do what you wish with my breath of a life. Do your will. I surrender to you like Job in dust and ashes. Now, you might not be there, but that's what understanding who God is and who you are leads you to. Completely humbled as you're at the mercy of God. Period. Now, lastly, with this point, Paul does, amidst all the mystery of this doctrine, he gives us one reason. This is like being at the end of the galaxy of God's revelation to us. He gives us this one reason from the mind and purpose of God that we're privy to. We don't know probably most of it. This one reason and nothing further. And what do we read in verses 22 and 23? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath 
prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now I want you to think about what if God did save everyone, every sinner? You know what that'd be like? That'd be like every criminal in our country, in this world, that gets a full pardon for their crime. What do you see there? There's no justice in that. And not only is there no justice, there's no real understanding of what grace is. When everyone gets off for what they've done. Because in that scenario, everyone would feel entitled to a pardon. Everyone else is getting it. And no one would feel the weight of their crime. You see, there would be no justice and grace wouldn't be grace. It's only against the backdrop of God's perfect justice, his righteous judgment, that we are stunned by how undeserved grace is. And to give you a picture, let's say that all of our lives were lived in the light, that all we knew was the light and we had no concept of darkness. If that was the case, we would not know the power, the blinding power, the piercing power of light. We wouldn't appreciate the full extent of what light is. When is light blinding to you? When does it pierce you? When you're in the pitch dark. When you've been sleeping all night and someone turns the light on, like, oh, man, like, and put the covers over yourself. It's only in the contrast of light put up against the darkness do we understand the extent, the fullness of both. Or another picture. You know who can't fully appreciate the glory of a perfect 75 degrees sunny, not humid day? Californians. Those spoiled bums. Californians. Do you realize it's only those of us, East Coasters, myself who grew up in the Chicago area, who have gone through year after year the bitter winter cold, and who go through the nasty, gross, hot, summer, humid heat, that they can fully appreciate the glory of a perfect 75-degree day. You see, God aims to be glorified in all that he is. And for God to be glorified, he needs to be seen. He, he needs to be beheld in all that he is in his fullness. And it's only when we behold the perfect justice of God against sinners whom he condemns. Again, are we absolutely stunned 
humble when he shows his grace to undeserved people. Have you ever been there where in your heart you think about all this and you're like, God, why did you choose me? Why out of all these people have you lavished your grace upon me? What did I do to deserve this? Why did you choose me? It's all of your sheer grace. This utter humility and gratitude is what election to. Now with that, this flows into our last point, our last heading, and that's our response to God's election. Why is it that Paul teaches on this hard doctrine? Why is it that the entire Bible from the Old Testament, which Paul refers to, right, this is not just a doctrine that Paul himself teaches in a few Versus passages. The whole Bible teaches this doctrine clearly. Now, why? Is it for our confusion? Is it for controversy? No, these doc- this doctrine is taught plainly. It's taught because this is what the people of God need. We need this truth for our souls. It's in the Bible because it's there to help us. Right? Just like we saw, it is to help Christians really see just how great is the grace that has saved us and to move us to a worthy response in our lives. Now, what are some of those? Well, we just saw it. It ought to lead to utter humility and gratitude because it had nothing to do with you. It was sheer mercy, sheer grace. What else do we see here? Church, we need to share Paul's heart and burden to seek and save those who are lost with the gospel. The first three verses of our passage, what do, you, do you hear Paul's heart there? And this is the reason why he's talking about all this. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, Israel, according to the flesh. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them for my people Israel, is that they may be saved. Now this may raise one more objection in your mind with all this. And that's that if God is absolutely sovereign and he's ordained all that comes to pass, if he's already chosen those whom he'll save, then why evangelize? Why pray? Why do anything at all? Have you ever been there? Struggle with that? You know, if God already knows what I'm going to ask him, he 
He already knows what I need. He already knows how he's going to answer my prayer. Why pray? What's the point of praying? Everything we does, everything we do, absolutely matters. Because God has not only ordained the results of all that happens, he has also ordained the means by which all the results will be achieved, which you and I are responsible for. You see, the means by which God's elect will come to faith in Jesus and be saved is through your praying and your sharing the gospel with them. Not apart from that. So if you don't pray, if you don't share the gospel, then they are not saved. God ordains not only the results, but also the means that we are to do by which those things are achieved. Don't try to be smarter than the Apostle Paul. He knew the doctrine of election far better than any of us, but how do you see him living his life? By a passive attitude. Oh, God has already set all things in his plan. He's already chosen those whom will save. He'll take care of it. No. He laid down his life. He gave up his life as a missionary because he knew that through that means, God will bring in the elect to be saved. In fact, actually, the doctrine of election didn't dissuade him from pouring out his life to seek and save the lost. It actually energized him, emboldened him, motivated him, because it gave him the absolute assurance that through his efforts, God will, not might, he will save his chosen. Now more on this next Sunday. This is Romans chapter 10. So I'm not going to steal Pastor Luke's thunder. More on this next Sunday. So come back for that. But let me speak here as I close to anyone in this room who has yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Because this is a really hard message to hear. And perhaps what this has brought up in your mind and caused you to feel is, so are you telling me that my fate is already sealed? What if I'm not one of God's elect? Well, you don't know that. And you will seal your fate unless you do what God has revealed you to do. You see, the doctrine of predestination is not something that's meant for us to know and figure out those who are chosen and those who are not. That knowledge belongs to God and God alone. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a very important verse in this regard where it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Nobody is meant to 
know or try to figure out those whom God chose and those whom God hasn't. That, uh, that's a secret thing that belongs to God and God alone. If you're not a Christian yet, you know what you're responsible for? To do what God has revealed for you to do. Don't look at predestination. Don't try to figure that out or guess at that. Look at what's right in front of you very clearly. It's a door to everlasting life with Jesus in heaven. And that door is wide open for you to enter in and go through. Above that door is a very clear, wide open invitation to you. An invitation from, say, the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, where it says, Let all who are thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You know the exorbitant entrance fee to enter through this door? Has already been paid at the cross where Jesus bled and died to suffer the full punishment for sins. So now for anyone who would come, it is absolutely free without price. Now any of you who have not entered through that door, perhaps you've thought about doing that in the past and there's been something in the past that has stopped you from doing so. Perhaps this morning, you hear Romans chapter 9, and again, that question, what if I'm not one of God's chosen? That causes you to struggle. Well, in response, let me tell you this. Instead of, again, looking at election, if you walk through that door, even today, if you say, you know what, what do I have to lose? I can trust that Jesus is the source of the water of life and can fully quench my thirst. If you in faith step through that door and enter in, on the other side of that door that you can only see when you're on the inside as you look back, you will see written above the door you are chosen and beloved before the foundation of the world. You see, election is something you can only know and realize from the inside. So come in, enter in, and know God's love for you. Which leads to the very last response for those of us who have entered in and know this electing God, love of God for us it should make you the most secure most confident people in the world because you know that God loves you no matter what no matter When did God begin to love you?
How did God love you? God set his love upon you from all eternity past. Do you realize there was never, ever, ever a moment in all of eternity where God's love has not been set upon you? You know, I remember, I remember years ago, in bed one night, just pondering that reality. And it absolutely floored me. I was bawling in tears when I realized there was never a moment when his love was not set upon me. And it absolutely flooded my soul with peace and confidence and security and joy like I've never experienced since then. Why? Because I realized if God has set his everlasting love upon me before I was made, before this world was made, that had nothing to do with who I was or wasn't, that had nothing to do with what I did or did not do, then I can have absolute confidence that no matter what I am or am not, no matter what I do or am, don't do, God's love for me will not change in the least. That's an absolute anchor for your soul like none other that secures you. You know what's a dangerous question that you can be asked by a loved one? By your children, by your spouse? Why do you love me? You know, my wife asks me this question from time to time at the most random times. Why do you love me? That's a dangerous question. <laughs> you know why? Because what are the kinds of answers that we typically give? Oh, I love you because you're so beautiful. You're smart. You're talented. You make me laugh, you don't make me cry, and so on and on. Do you understand that those kind of answers actually communicate that there is condition in your love? Because what if your spouse or your children lose their youthful beauty or they become dumber or duller, are you going to love them less? Are you going to stop loving them altogether? Now, you know what the one perfectly secure answer to that question, why do you love me, is? Now, it's not satisfying to hear, but it is the one secure question, answer. It's I love you because I love you. No other reason, no conditions. I love you because I love you. That's God's love for us. No other reason, no conditions. You know, I'm starting to understand this love a little bit more in this season as my wife and I are expecting our first child. You know, we 
don't know anything about this child, except actually the gender. We just found that out this past week, and it is a boy. Right? We're going to have a son. Now, besides that, we don't know what he's going to look like. We don't know his personality. We don't know what he's going to do in his life. But you know what? We already love our son. We pray for our son frequently. He is pre-loved before he's even born, before we have even met him yet. And if that's the case, then may our son know that since our love for him has started, even before he was born, before he was anything or he did anything, then surely, no matter what he turns out to be, no matter what he does or doesn't, the love of his mommy and daddy for him will never change. That's the everlasting love of God for you. So would you rest in that love? Would you revel in that love? And would you humbly and with the deepest of gratitude exalt God for his love for you? Let's pray.